everybody, and welcome to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jorgensen. I'm Finn Arne Jorgensen. And we're happy to welcome today Jonathan Robbins, who's Associate Professor of History at Michigan Technological University. Um, he'll be discussing his book, Oil Palm, A Global History, which came out with University of North Carolina Press in 2021. So Jonathan, we'll give it over to you. Thank you, Dal and Finarn. Um, so uh, the book is titled Oil Palm, A Global History, um, and it is nominally about this particular plant, the oil palm. Um, it's not technically a tree, although I'll call it a tree um, to avoid being pedantic. Um, but it's also a book about palm oil, which is the main thing that we get from the oil palm um, as a species. Um, and so this is a plant that's native to Western Africa. Um, and it's from this region that both the plant and palm oil uh, were introduced to the world. Um, but as I mentioned in the introduction to the book today, uh, in the introduction, Africa imports something like 10 times more palm oil than it exports. And I just checked the figures yesterday. It's actually 40 times, depending on how we count uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and today it's Southeast Asia, which had only a you know, small scattering of oil palm botanical gardens in 1900. Today, Southeast Asia is by far the world's biggest uh, producer of palm oil and biggest host to oil palm populations. Um, so the book is, in a lot of ways, the story of that, that reversal, that switch. Um, how did Southeast Asia become such a dominant producer? Um, and it's also a book about what this transformation meant for people living in oil palm landscapes. Um, now, I don't make a claim that oil palm made the modern world or something like that, which we often see or used to see a lot in commodity histories. Um, it was an important tree, um, and palm oil, which, which is this main commodity that we get from it, uh, is the most widely consumed fat today. Um, the industry that makes most of this oil is uh, probably the single largest threat to tropical forests and peatlands on, on three continents. Um, so it, it is really important. It's not something we can ignore. Um, and as I found while I was working on this book, a lot of the experts and scientists uh, who are studying contemporary uh, problems with the oil palm industry had uh, little knowledge and often little interest in the history of how we got to this point, where this plantation industry came from, um, why it does what it does. Um, and so another goal of the book is to try to um, answer some of those questions. Why, why does the oil palm industry look the way it does today? Um, and so it's a book in in three parts, really. Um, it, the, the part breakdown didn't make it into the table of contents, but um, uh, I, I wrote it conceptually in three parts. And the first one uh, begins with the natural history of this plant and its human history um, in, in Western Africa. Uh, and the focus is really on the way that African societies in the first chapter uh, used oil palms and lived with oil palms. Um, and I make a case, uh, which is important later in the book, that the oil palm was not really a wild plant, at least not in any context where they were useful to humans. Um, and this is something that was very important in the colonial period where uh, many people assumed that oil palm was wild. And, and even today, scientists talk about it as a semi-wild plant, which is a ridiculous term. How can anything be semi-wild? But anyway, um, so the first chapter lays out that natural and human history. Uh, the next two chapters look at the, uh, the development of palm oil as a globally traded commodity. And this is a story that has been told in a lot of other places. I don't think I break a lot of new ground here. Um, the short version is that palm oil was an important food in the transatlantic slave trade. 
um, and it became an important export commodity out of Africa um, as abolition campaigns started to get rid of the transatlantic slave trade in the 19th century. Um, one thing I did find uh, that I highlight in the second chapter is an unexpected or unexpected to me anyway, route for palm oil into its first commodity markets in Europe. And it was not in soap and candles, which are the main 19th century uses, but it's actually as medicine. Um, and uh, I found pretty abundant and clear evidence that uh, European medical practitioners learned from African medicinal practices, which, which used palm oil um, in a number of ways, but often as a topical treatment for, for disease. Um, and they directly borrowed this practice. And, and by the early 19th century, palm oil is uh, relatively cheap and incredibly common medicine in, in at least England and France and possibly more parts of Western Europe. Um, the third chapter uh, was really a painful one to write because it, it was originally two very big chapters trying to cover an entire century of this transition from the transatlantic slave trade up until um, colonization towards the, towards the end of the 19th century. Um, and my, my editor made me cut all of this down to 30 pages. Um, so it's a very um, perhaps rushed history, uh, but it looks at uh, how the export trade in palm oil developed in Africa. Um, and it pays special attention to the factors that, that I think were most important, which were um, human factors, gender and technology in particular, that, that mediated the ways in which communities worked with oil palms and produced or didn't produce for export. Um, and I also look at some of the natural, the environmental factors uh, that, that played into this. Um, and I make a case throughout the book that, that labor and gendered labor in interaction with the environment um, tells us a lot about why the industry looks the way it looks in different parts of the world. Um, and so this first part of the book, the first four chapters, closes with a chapter that jumps fully to the consumer side of the story um, in the 19th century. And, and I spend some time in this chapter pushing back against some of the uh, more exaggerated claims that have shown up in the literature about the significance of palm oil in the Industrial Revolution. Um, it was useful, uh, but the short version, and it was somewhat disheartening to, to reach this conclusion after spending years and years researching it, um, is that palm oil wasn't all that important. Um, it was important because it was cheap. Uh, it was a cheap substitute for many other commodities. Um, and when cheaper commodities arrived, they replaced palm oil. Um, so it doesn't have many intrinsic properties, any intrinsic values that, that really um, made it crucial to industrialization, I found. Um, this sets the stage for the second part of the book, which um, is where uh, most of the archival research was concentrated. Um, and this was originally all I had planned to write was a 20th century colonial history of, of the oil palm industry, picking up where uh, particularly the, uh, the late historian Martin Lynn uh, left off. He wrote a very, really amazing book about the 19th century palm oil trade, um, but stopped right at, right at the beginning of the 20th century. And, and so I picked that up um, in this section. And the, the general argument is that uh, by the 20th century, European manufacturers, industrialists wanted more palm oil, but they wanted better palm oil uh, because they were starting to value some of the specific properties of palm oil um, rather than just its cheapness. And they thought that machinery was the answer, technology was the answer. Um, and with most of the oil palm belt under colonial control by 1900, these firms thought that they could um, mechanize 
oil palm production and do a much better job than African producers could. Um, and they failed just about everywhere. Um, they found out that Africa was not full of forests of wild palms with fruit just rotting on the ground. Uh, they found that harvesting was much more difficult than any European certainly had, had anticipated. Um, and the machines weren't very good either. Uh, and these failures, which uh, is the, what the fifth chapter really looks at, um, lead to the, the sixth and the seventh chapters. And there are two, two results that I see coming out of these, these business failures, these technological failures. Um, and one, uh, which is the theme of the sixth chapter, is the redemption in the eyes of colonial governments, at least, of uh, smallholders, small-scale producers. Um, they, they suddenly look much more viable as, as, uh, as commodity producers, as these large, well-capitalized projects fail. Um, and I show in the sixth chapter that, that these smallholder producers, uh, mostly in what is now Nigeria, but also across West Africa more broadly, uh, by the 1950s did uh, phenomenally expand the amount of palm oil they produced and exported, and, and the quality increased. Um, and this was in some places because of colonial rule, in some places it's despite of colonial rule and reaction to it. Um, there's a, a, a lot of variation from region to region um, and from decade to decade. Uh, the seventh chapter looks at the other result of that, that failure to mechanize, um, which was a turn to the plantation. Uh, one of the, the conclusions that colonizers reached, uh, first German colonizers uh, in Cameroon and then French and British and, and others, um, was that the, the problem with, with efficiently harvesting oil palms was oil palms themselves and the people working them. And so controlling the palm trees, controlling people, controlling the environment more broadly was the key to cheap, efficient production. And so the plantation system uh, emerges out of these failures with, with different models of some things that are not quite the plantation, that are trying to mix machines with um, some forms of, of indigenous production. Um, and it's not in Africa, but in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia, and Indonesia, that European companies um, find both a good natural environment for the oil palm, but also uh, colonial governments that are quite willing to hand out land, which is not the case in much of sub Saharan. In Africa. And these governments also help companies recruit um, different forms of unfree and coerced labor from across the region. And again, this is also not the case in much of sub Saharan Africa. Um, and so it wasn't inevitable, it wasn't smooth sailing, uh, I argue, but uh, by 1939, Sumatra um, in Western Indonesia um, has become the biggest exporter of palm oil um, uh, and has a very thriving plantation industry. Um, but in the next chapter, I argue that it almost falls apart after 1945. Uh, decolonization could have, and in some places does, break this plantation machine. Um, and uh, the story I tell in this eighth chapter is that late colonial and early post-colonial leaders um, decided to remake rather than destroy and, and completely change this plantation machine. They remake it for their own purposes. Um, and they, they settle in most cases on some variations of what different planners call the nucleus estate smallholder model or NES model. Um, which uh, the World Bank was very enthusiastic about when it starts investing in these kinds of projects. Um, and this model combines a small plantation and a highly efficient oil factory with smallholder cultivation. And it's supposed to have the best of both worlds, efficiency, uh, technical performance, but without 
without transforming farmers into wage laborers, um, giving people a stake in the land. Um, and as the later chapters show, it, it worked in some places. It was successful some of the time in creating good livelihoods for people. Um, sometimes it was, you could argue it was environmentally responsible, um, but in some cases it was catastrophic. Um, and this is this tension um, that, that oil palm is not one thing is something that I really focus on in the third part of the book. Um, and so this model was, uh, really the dominant way that oil palm uh, was developed in the 1970s and 1980s. But by the 1990s, it starts to fade away. Um, and even in World Bank funded projects, um, we start to see investment in just plantations without smallholders attached to them. And this is, this is basically where we are today. Um, Indonesia, I think two years ago, formally dropped its last requirements to include smallholders in plantation development. Um, so in the third part, I'm trying to just make sense of, of the, the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Um, there's a chapter that jumps back to the consumer side, trying to understand um, how uh, industrial uses for oil palm or for palm oil evolved. Um, and it's, it's largely a story about food, uh, palm oil replacing things, being replaced, and then replacing things again uh, for different political and, and uh, health reasons. Um, and it's a story that uh, in the book is mostly about Europe and to some extent North America. Um, but I did try to incorporate some, some really recent work on Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia, South Asia. Um, and I just want to call it here, uh, uh, Jocelyn Zuckerman has a recent book that came out just before mine called Planet Palm that has a, an amazing chapter on how palm oil becomes so pervasive in India as just an everyday staple. It is everywhere. And today, India is the, the number one importer of palm oil. Um, it was China when I started writing the book 10 years ago. Uh, but since then, India has, has shot up. Um, and so in the, in the last chapter, I then jump back from the consumer side to the producer side to try to try to deal with the consequences. Um, and this is sort of um, the intellectual version of me throwing up my hands and saying, I, I don't know. Uh, it's just it becomes the oil palm in industry becomes so big and so diverse and so many things in the 1990s and 2000s that no no one researcher, I think, can really do justice to it. Um, it expands in Malaysia and Indonesia just exponentially, and it expands in different ways. Conventional plantations, smallholders, smallholders with plantations, all kinds of interesting land tenure arrangements. Um, and on top of this, there's a revival in the uh, the traditional oil palm belt in sub-Saharan Africa. And there's entirely new producers, Papua New Guinea, Thailand, Colombia, Ecuador, Costa Rica, Honduras, Guatemala, Peru, uh, Myanmar. It just, uh, it's just way too much for any one person to try to um, uh, do justice to. And so what I tried to do is highlight what I thought were the continuities from the colonial and post-colonial eras. Um, and some of these are really obvious. The same companies that were at work in 1900 are still doing business, still uh, running plantations today. Um, colonial ways of thinking about uh, development, about the environment, about labor, these are still pervasive. Um, but there are also a lot of really new, very local factors um, that, that are really contingent on local and regional history. Um, and I think it's, it's an understanding these contingencies that we see uh, when we can explain some of the variation where oil palm is, is a great crop for some farmers in some parts of the world, and it's a tool for, for dispossession and violence in, um, in others. Um, and so it, it, I don't really have a, 
a tidy packaged uh, conclusion at the end that says where this is all heading, because I don't know. It's it's, it's many different things going in many different directions. Um, and I, I have some optimism that, that there are ways of developing oil palm that could be less bad, um, but the, the current trajectory um, and, and what we've seen in the last two years, even during the pandemic, um, is not making me very optimistic that these that these less bad options will be will be the way forward. Um, okay, so I, I've talked long enough. I'll, I'll turn it back to you, Dali and Finar. Thanks. It's fascinating to to hear about the palm oil in this way because it's like a constant theme in Norwegian media, at least uh, on. Because you know it's in all our food, right? Uh, and there's been this constant campaign stand to have our companies stop using palm oil because it's so incredibly environmentally damaging. That's the narrative that we get. So I see that you, you know, you nuance that story, but in the end, I mean, you you came back to the, the environmentally damaging part uh, of that. So uh, I'm wondering, you know, how. How new is this narrative then of we need to stop using palm oil? We need to find other alternatives for environmental reasons. I mean, you said, you know, there was mm -hmm. nothing like intrinsic and there's always been other alternatives, but uh, how did we get to this point where it's, it's such a radical, uh, dramatic change that needs to, to happen? Yeah, well, the... The focus on environmental concerns specifically dates to the 1990s, the late 1980s. Um, uh, but it's it comes uh, with earlier waves of, of on the consumer side. Um, at first, it's strategic paranoia, um, particularly in the United States, because the United States produces no palm oil. Its colonies did not produce palm oil, um, and yet palm oil was an important strategic um, material. It was it played a, a very small but very important role in tin plating and in rolling steel, um, and the U.S. maintained a gigantic strategic stockpile into the 1950s, and so there's a massive campaign to replace palm oil in the US for strategic reasons in the 50s. Uh, there's an economic campaign in the 70s where soybean farmers, um, and this continues in the 1980s, soybean rapeseed farmers don't want the competition from palm oil. Um, and they're arguing that it should be replaced for both economic and also health reasons. Um, and it's in the 1980s where we see these really, um, really groundbreaking campaigns um, from groups like Greenpeace, uh, different deforestation campaign groups, different indigenous rights groups coming together around um, soybeans in Brazil, but also oil palm in Malaysia um, and later Indonesia. And they're starting to identify um, this, this linked issue of environmental destruction and indigenous rights. Um, and there's, they, they get some newspaper headlines, but they don't get a mass movement into the 1990s. It's not until the late 1990s um, that I really saw evidence of um, something that looks like today's um, consumer-based, consumer-driven concerns. Uh, people starting to talk about ecological footprints, for example, and, and ingredients hidden in, in the foods and things that we consume. Um, and this just gradually accelerates through the, the 2000s and 2010s. Um, and it accelerates in part because most people are using more palm oil in that period. Uh, trans fats are banned by the late 90s, early 2000s in most countries. And so palm oil is, is the substitute for these, these trans fats. Um, and so as more and more uh, palm oil shows up in people's um, ingredient lists, uh, people's awareness starts to grow. And, and the volume 
the volume does increase significantly. There is a, a substantive change in consumption patterns that, that's underlying this. It's not just a change in perception. Um, so, uh, but this this idea that we have to we have to boycott palm oil or completely replace it uh, for environmental reasons is really a product of, of the 2000s and, and 2010s. Um, and there is uh, most of it is, I think, genuine. Um, the reaction that you see even in the 1980s and 90s from major producers is claiming that it's astroturf, that it's protectionism. It's not really, um, and, and Norway is a case that doesn't really make a lot of sense for, but in the case of Germany, it's not really environmental activists, it's rapeseed producers. They don't want the competition. It's American soybean farmers who don't want the competition. Um, and I, I have found zero evidence of systematic funding um, for, for green campaigns. I, I, don't, I don't really give much credence to this argument. Um, uh, but the fact that replacing palm oil does mean replacing it doesn't it doesn't mean doing without fat it means finding something else and that something else would be rapeseed it would be soybean it would be um, other predominantly northern hemisphere produced uh, commodities um, so. so I was wondering about or a little bit more understanding of the plantation system with this particular crop um, you know we heard a few weeks ago, from Greg Mittman, who was talking about rubber plantations and the way that rubber plantations and, um, are, you know, how you tap trees in that case to get the to get the rubber. So I was wondering, with these oil palms, are they where you plant it one time and then it's you know lives for twenty years, or are they like bananas where you plant it and you you know rip it out and then you need to plant another banana because um, you said it isn't actually a tree, right? So. Right. I was curious how this how this works and then what the implications of that biology are in the way that the plantations can or can't be set up. Yeah, that's, I think, a really important issue. Um, and I it's seventh chapter in the book, which is focused on these southeast plantations, um, I think is uh, really the one that most squarely tries to deal with um, the, the natural realities and how they shape um, human systems. And so oil palm can live for 100, 200 years. It can be a very long-lived tree, but if it gets very, very tall um, and to harvest fruit before it turns rancid, you have to climb it and cut it. Um, and so in the pre-plantation era, um, uh, in, in, in indigenous West African harvesting systems, men would climb very tall trees. Um, it, it's incredibly labor intensive. It's incredibly dangerous. Um, it's not done even today in many parts of West Africa. It does survive in a number of places. It survives in Brazil, uh, oddly, um, um, as, as a holdover of this African heritage um, in, in Bahia. But in everywhere else where the plantation predominates, when the tree gets too tall, the answer is to kill it and replace it. Um, and so traditionally that has been 20 to 25 years, depending on the region and, and depending on how hard a company can press its workers, um, because the harvesting is done from the ground with these extremely long poles with knives at the top. And it's, they're, they're incredibly awkward to use. It, it's a, a very skilled and very physically intense task. Um, and so companies who have a skilled workforce could potentially harvest trees 35, 40 years uh, old. Um, but in most cases, it's cheaper to simply kill the trees, bulldoze them, and plant new ones. Um, they can be harvested with much shorter 
sort of pull. And so this this height increment uh, has been something that that plantation breeders have been chasing since 1900, trying to find a shorter palm. And they, they have developed shorter breeds, but they, they still inevitably climb too high. Um, the other natural factor, and, and comparing this to rubber, for example, um, is that rubber does need to be collected and treated carefully, as Greg said has talked, to keep it from coagulating. Um, palm oil is similar in that you have to pick the fruit and move it immediately for processing. If it sits too long, it goes rancid, it ruins the quality. Um, uh, it, it defeats the whole purpose of having a plantation is getting these high yields, a very good quality palm oil. Um, so this is this natural imperative that, that's baked into, in, into the genetics of the oil palm and its fruit. Um, uh, but that doesn't require a plantation. There, there are other ways of harvesting fruit and moving it quickly for processing. Um, and this is something that the, this NES, this nucleus estate smallholder model does. It lets small scale farmers pick fruit at their own schedule, at their own pace, and take it to a central factory for processing. And it, it gets around this, this argument that I saw through the 1950s, really, that nature and technology and labor are interlinked and there's only one answer. There's only one way this all comes together and it's the plantation controlled by a foreign company, foreign managers. Um, and, and that's just not true. Uh, these different pieces are important, but they can work in different ways in different contexts. Um, I think that's something that um, I thought was important to highlight later in the book. Um, and I'm sort of speaking here to, um, I don't think anybody in this room, but but uh, the scientists and experts and, and politicians who are trying to think about futures for, for oil palm. Um, there, are, there, there is no one way that, that nature demands. Nature demands nothing of, 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 of us, of the oil palm's nature. Um, we, we put demands on it. Um, So we have, as a, I think, a good follow-up of that. Kate, mm -hmm. who talked to us in this book talk series on palm trees mm -hmm. uh, a while ago, was wondering about the your thoughts on the current research into making synthetic palm oil, uh, referring them to C16 biosciences, which is then backed by uh, Bill Gates, among others. So, so you mentioned uh, the word natural quite a few times in now just just now, and so. Can you say a little bit about this, this natural and synthetic palm oil? Yeah, I, I admit this is something I've intentionally not researched too intensively, um, um, in part because it is so far outside of my area of expertise. Um, my my general thoughts are that I'm, I'm skeptical that, that it will work, that the economics and, and the ecological economics will work. Um, uh, algae can photosynthesize, you know, take sunlight and CO2 and make wonderful things, but they also need other nutrients. And I haven't seen, uh, I'm sure they exist, but I haven't seen the data on what those other nutrients are because palm oil is more than just carbon and hydrogen. There are other things in it uh, that make it work. Um, if it works, it would be devastating for the oil palm industry, but for all oils, not just oil palm, it, it would change the entire food system would change everything. Um, and so it would be a special concern for palm oil producers who have, um, especially in Indonesia, in Colombia, in Thailand, bet so heavily on palm oil, not just as food, but as biofuel. Um, and I think in particular that biofuel market, if there is an algae-based alternative, um, 
yeah, I, I think that's that's a very precarious market, and I I, I don't you know I, I don't this is outside of my area of expertise, and uh, I think historians uh, are generally allergic to predicting the future. Um, but um, I, I am watching it with interest, but not with um, great certainty either way as to how it's going to turn out. Well, since it was uh, Kate who asked that question, her book uh, is called. Uh, Palace of Palms, Tropical Dreams and the Making of Q. I was wondering about the, the people behind these tropical dreams of moving, oh, obviously a, an African crop um, to these other places. Um, how, yeah, what kind of roles were they in? Are there scientists who are promoting this is it all agricultural extension stations or you know is it governments themselves so i was wondering a little bit about those kind of you know dreamers who are taking it everywhere yeah it's all of the above um and so i i did some very productive research at the the royal botanic gardens at kew uh, which had a very active um research branch uh, you know the economic botany department was constantly looking into oil palm and, and periodically getting interested and then losing interest in oil palm um, in different points in history um and uh, i should say by the way kate's book a fantastic book it's on the shelf back there uh, a, a great resource um in the history of palms generally um and uh what i what i found at q was that the 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 botanists the the scientific specialists often had great ideas that were really they didn't know how to translate into uh, realities in, into viable projects um, and so they offered oil palm seeds everywhere they're sending seedlings all over the place um, there's um, I, I found a very strange stream of correspondence in the both Kew um, Botanic Gardens and the Colonial Office Archives in Kew where um, a, a colonial governor uh, who had formerly been in Singapore, uh, moved to Lagos, um, is discovering for the first time this oil palm tree and says it's a great industry. He sends letters everywhere um, trying to convince other colonial governors to start oil palm. Uh, he sends letters to the Caribbean. Uh, he, he gives a speech where he berates the people of Guyana for not growing oil palms, even though their ancestors had grown them for hundreds of years um, in, in gardens. Um, and uh, he sort of restarts this chain of correspondence and these files that had been dormant um, that ultimately lead in Singapore and in, in Malaya to, to this renewed wave of, of experiments. But the oil palm was already there. It was, had already been carried by earlier botanist seed collectors. Um, it, it definitely arrived in on the island of Java um, in 1848. Um, in the book, I make a tentative argument about two parallel introductions rather than one single introduction. Uh, and the literature has gone back and forth on this. Uh, we know from, from the records at the Botanic Gardens at uh, what's now Bogor was Boitenzark, um, that there were four palms that arrived in 1848. Um, and this very cryptic letter that's then updated a year later in a cryptic journal entry says, two come from Amsterdam and two come from um, the Isle of Bourbon, where they, get, they come from Bourbon. And uh, a year later, uh, the person writing this entry adds in parentheses, Mauritius, question mark. Um, and 
the poems coming from Amsterdam make a lot of sense um, in terms of colonial botany projects, um, uh, bioprospecting, looking for the next commodity to take over. The Dutch had settlements in West Africa, um, and there's correspondence between Java and Elmina and what is now Ghana and Amsterdam, where they're talking in the 1850s about palm oil. Um, so that's probably one route. It's probably where these poems came from by way of Amsterdam. Um, the two poems from, from Bourbon, um, scientists had initially thought they came from Reunion, which is the, the Ile de Bourbon. Um, some scientists argued it was a red herring. They all came from Amsterdam and one of the ships just stopped at, Re at Reunion. Um, I found looking, and here this is where, where digital research was really vital, looking in, in digitized um, uh, full text transcriptions of publications, uh, I found that the person who introduced, who's credited with the, these two poems coming from Bourbon, um, I found a name, uh, and he wasn't a botanist, he was a, a businessman, a Welsh businessman, uh, who was an investor in various colonial companies in Java, um, who imported all kinds of things from all sorts of places, but particularly from Mauritius, from the from Port Bourbon, which is where I think this, this term Bourbon comes from. Um, and if I'm right, it means that the the four parent palms, who are the, who are the parents of the entire plantation industry even today, um, that they actually come from two distinct streams. Um, one from Mauritius, and we have no idea how it got there. Uh, the Mauritius Botanic Garden burned at one point in the 8th, 19th century, so its records are lost. Um, and so we have this Mauritius strand and this Amsterdam strand, and I am. Um, I'm, I'm trying to learn Dutch. I'm, I'm getting back into paleography to look at some of these 19th century records from West Africa to see if I can confirm any, any shipments from the 1840s. Um, I'm not the first person to have looked. Um, earlier generations of scholars have looked and have found nothing, um, but I'm hoping that with access to, to newly available resources that, that maybe there will be some clues. And, and if anyone is interested um, in a collaborative project, I would be happy to, to collaborate with somebody who is much better at reading Dutch that, than I am. Um, so I was getting off on a tangent here, but um, the, the, the story of these botanical introductions is one of a lot of disappointments. These, these introductions to Java are ultimately failures. Uh, the government gives up on oil palm. Uh, there are introductions to Singapore and the surrounding islands. Um, they give up on those. Um, and it's not until 1910, 1911 that, that, that these plantation companies um, really make it work um, because they have access to um, an enormous pool of cheap labor, basically. Um, yeah, and I think you were going on, on, on a tangent there is actually quite mm -hmm. relevant also for thinking about the, the research process and the material that you work mm -hmm. with uh, and also linking it to this, this wide range of actors that you talked about. Uh, and you mentioned a company. So I was wondering if you could say a bit more about the role of corporations and your access to their part of this history, because that's also a theme that's come up in previous book talks of people working with corporate archives, as I have done too, is that they can at times be very hard to get into. So you, you need to take detours to tell the story, uh, if you can do it at all then. So could you say a little bit more there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that is very much the case for Oil Palm, uh, the companies that are still extant. Um, and so the big one, the, the, the behemoth in the room is, is Unilever, um, which through various waves of consolidations gobbled up 
so many other trading companies and plantation companies and food production companies and candle companies and soap companies. Um, so they've amassed a, a huge volume of, of archival material um, at Port Sunlight, which um, I visited. I had I could have spent years there. I had, I had to sort of triage my, my time there. Um, and everything up through 1960 was open, at least everything that you can see in the catalog. Um, so I had access to uh, a lot of materials. Um, a lot of really interesting things. Um, but I also wasn't the first person to have done this. A lot of historians have, have been in there. Um, and so for me, Unilever was sort of a mixed bag. Um, I didn't find any um, shocking surprises, any hidden conspiracies, um, anything like that. Um, there were, there's another company, uh, uh, Sockfin, uh, which is was a huge rubber company. Today is heavily invested in, in oil, palm, and rubber, um, which is incredibly secretive. Um, nobody has ever been able to use their archives for any meaningful um, purpose, um, and I would love to see to see their papers. Um, uh, Guthrie's, which was a major British trading firm, um, which entered the plantation business in the late 18th centuries, um, was bought out in the late 1970s by Malaysian owners. And they dumped the archive in London. When they transferred the headquarters, they just gave it to uh, the, the, the what was then the Guildhall Library. Um, and they may have done some cleaning, I don't know. Um, but the, the state of the archive looks as if it was just scraps they decided they didn't want and tossed. And so it's a very strange collection, um, but it's it gives you sort of a snapshot of, of an uncurated, what I think is a fairly uncurated company collection. Um, and um, uh, there's also uh, Harrison's and Crossfield, which is a similar story. It's a British company. It's bought out by a Malaysian firm, a set of Malaysian investors in the 1970s, and they dump the papers uh, on a UK archive. And again, they don't appear to have been particularly culled. Um, and the Harrison's and Crossfield archive was probably the most useful corporate archive I looked at because it covered a, a huge span of time, a huge range of sub-companies. Um, there's just a lot of really candid correspondence and, and reports and, and whatnot in there. Um, so between the two of them, between the, the surviving businesses with their archives and the, these effectively dead companies and their archives, I could do a lot. Um, I also gained a real appreciation for um, empire as a way of organizing and collecting information. Um, and this is, I think, a, a constraint of, of the book is that it is oil palm, a global history. It's also oil palm, a mostly British imperial history. Um, and that's in part because the two biggest areas of development, um, uh, West Africa and, and Malaysia, um, for the periods I'm looking at, happened to be British colonies. Uh, but the British government was just very good at collecting data on private companies and their activities. And companies complain a lot. They write lots of letters asking for things. And it's in those complaints that, that I got a lot of the environmental history, the social history, the labor history, um, to try to fill in some of the pieces that, that I, I don't otherwise know how, how to access. Um, so um, let's talk a bit about commodity history and well, the making of the modern mm -hmm. world, that's the point you made. I'm glad you made it. Because uh, as I see the best commodity histories, I mean, they draw on a wide range of fields. I mean, you mentioned, you know, a lot of them, uh, you know, British imperial history, social history, uh, environmental history, and so on. So could you Talk a little bit more about the specific intersection between commodity histories of this type that you've written here and environmental history. You know, why, why is environmental history 
necessary for telling a good commodity history of this type? What can environmental historians learn from working with commodities? Yeah, um, so the book is a commodity history. I, I admit that, that even titling it after the plant, um, despite the commodity, it is still a commodity history. Um, and I read, I read a lot of commodity histories when I was thinking about at different points, framing the book, writing the introduction, uh, dealing with, with, with um, some of the, the theoretical issues, which I should, I should say candidly, um, I am, nobody has ever praised me for being a particularly erudite uh, theoretical scholar. Um, the book is very empirical, um, but I found that it didn't make any sense to write a commodity history of an agricultural product without fully engaging with environmental history. Um, in this concept of, of, of new natures in particular, that, I mean, Dolly, among others, has, has written lots on, lots of other scholars here. I, see, uh, I don't know if he's still here. Frank Odeker, I saw, has, has this very influential to me um, collection that he edited on, on plantation histories that, that use these concepts of new nature. Um, and this, this seemed almost a, a commonplace to me. Once you internalize it, there's no other way of seeing this, uh, of seeing the plantation except nature remade for a specific set of ends, but nature that is still natural and has unpredictable, uncontrollable elements um, working in it. And for oil palm, um, disease is, is sort of the main non-human factor, although um, I, I give a, a bit of a... Um, piece for elephants. Um, elephants, where they survive, are voracious predators of oil palm. Um, and, and in Western Africa, they probably, I think, uh, along with wildfire, the main constraint on, on oil palm distribution. Um, so this idea of, of environmental history um, seems fundamental to, to writing a commodity history of agriculture. I don't know how you could write an agricultural commodity history without this environmental perspective. But I also think the labor history is really crucial. Um, and, and in this story, I think what really struck me was the way that labor, labor history and environmental history intersect in the story of oil palm. Um, the labor history doesn't make a lot of sense without understanding the environmental factors, uh, things like the height of oil palm trees, their distribution, the way that they produce fruit. Um, that natural side of the story was essential in understanding that labor history. Um, something I wish I had approached differently um, was environmental history, environmental perspectives on the consumer side of the story. Um, and I did a little bit of this in chapter four, which looks at the 19th century, at the Industrial Revolution, um, working with, with ideas like, like ghost acres that a lot of scholars have used re really productively um, to talk about um, you know, the environmental impact of different um, consumption decisions. Um, Something that I, I wish I had looked more at in, in the second consumer side chapter is um, the environmental history of, of the household, of the body, of everyday food systems. Um, and I'm thinking of, of things like um, Anna Zede's book, Canned, that you know, I, is, is a book about canning and environmental history. It, it is. Um, and I think if I had, I wish I had read that before I wrote um, that, that section just as, as, as a, new, a new way of conceptualizing um, the consumer side history. And I'll say one of the complaints that I had before writing this book about many commodity histories was that they didn't spend enough time on the consumer side. It's usually um, six production chapters and one consumption chapter tucked somewhere in the middle. Um, and I realized at the end, I've done the same thing. Um, I, I don't know how to, how to reconcile this. And I'm not sure they, they need to be reconciled or should be. Um, uh, 
but this this uh, I, I think I would like to to think more in the future about ways of, of theorizing consumption within environmental history, consumption um, and consumption practices, consumption habits as, as something that I think environmental history has a lot to say about, um, along with gender history, um, you know, cultural history more broadly. I think that there's a lot in there that I, I wish I could have um, uh, thought more clearly about at an earlier stage in the project. And this is one of the, the problems with trying to write a big book is it just becomes um, unmanageable uh, at some point. Um, and you just have to finish the damn thing. Um, so, sorry, I've got another tangent here. Um, no, but that's that's good <laughs> advice for all of us, right? You just have to finish. Um, but you mentioned labor history there. Mm -hmm. And um, when you were introducing your book, you also mentioned about gender. Um, and so I was wondering, how does gender play in to the you know, labor organization? And, you know, does it end up with very different systems in different places? Um, as you said, it's kind of, it seems like it's kind of fungible. It changes uh, depending on its setting uh, that oil palm enters. Or do people end up kind of following the same gender dimensions? Yeah, no, there's a real bifurcation there with, with the plantation system. Um, so the, and, and, and I, I say, I am avoiding the word traditional because one of the things I make in the book is that it's not traditional, but in, in indigenous systems of palm oil production, which changed a lot, as I, as I argue in the book, um, there is a, an extremely strict gender dichotomy in harvesting. Harvesting climbing palm trees is exclusively male. Um, and this is true in every society I looked at from Sierra, from Senegal uh, down to Angola. I could find no exceptions in the ethnographic literature. So it's a, it's a, it's a hard, it seems to be a hard-coded gender norm that climbing palm trees is male. Um, and that's the primary constraint in the pre-plantation era on harvesting. How many trees can a man climb? Um, and a lot of historians who have worked on palm oil, um, I don't think took climbing seriously enough. I don't think they took the availability of male labor seriously enough because making palm oil, which was in most places women's work because it's associated with cooking, was incredibly labor intensive. Um, it's also very hard work. Um, and and it, it, it is you know, a, a very legitimate subject, but it's, uh, you need them both. You need this balance between these two different forms of gendered labor to explain um, the constraints on how much palm oil any one society can make in any given uh, area. Um, and, and I argue in the book that by 1900, I, I think most parts of certainly Nigeria and many parts of West Africa had hit the limits of what was possible given the population size, the distribution of trees and the technology available within the prevailing gender system. Um, the plantation changes that by eliminating tree climbing, um, but harvesting still remains a, a male coded, male gender job um, in part because it is physically intensive. The fruit bunches can weigh um, you know, up to 70, 80 kilograms, they're really big. Um, so it, they're, they're very heavy. Um, and so this, this uh, even in Southeast Asia it is again, coded as male labor. Um, but tasks like weeding and fertilizing, which don't exist um, on the whole in, in non-plantation systems, um, these become largely feminized tasks uh, that, that women are employed for and often paid far less than men for. Um, and they become a really significant 
part of the total cost of production for plantations was the 1950s. Um, this constant weeding and application of pesticides and fertilizers. Um, and this is still true in most parts of Southeast Asia, um, where applying pesticide and spreading fertilizer um, are, are overwhelmingly jobs held by women, and they're often paid much less than men who do similar work. Um, this is, this is a, an issue that, um, you know, a lot of activists who are working on labor issues are very um, attuned to and, and really focused on. Um, I should say, though, pesticide application is an interesting one for gender in that um, in Southeast Asia, it is it was initially associated with weeding and therefore is, is feminine in places like Latin America, where, where oil palm is, an, is a novel crop, um, pesticide application is novel. This association, I think, with technology and with danger makes this now a masculine thing. Um, and men tend to get better safety equipment than women um, when they're applying pesticides. Um, so the gender is just something that is pervasive throughout the book. Um, and I, I wish I had brought out gender more on the consumer side of it as well. Um, a lot of the um, advertising that, that promotes palm oil products, things like palm olive soap, for example, um, are, are really uh, you know, all about gender um, and, and ideas about beauty and, and what these commodities can do for people of particular gender identities. Um, so yeah, gender is a theme that, that runs throughout. I Again, I don't theorize it in any really profound way. I, I'm learning from a lot of fantastic scholars who have worked in this, particularly in the West African context, uh, people like, like Gloria Chuku, Judith Blyfeld. Um, and I've been really excited to see, not so much in history, but in anthropology, scholars um, working on Southeast Asia also really focusing on gender. Um, so um, Tanya Lee and Pooja Sumedhi have a new book that just came out on plantations in, in Indonesia that you know, gender just runs right through it as a theme um, that I think is really um, important to understanding how oil palm systems work in different parts of the world. So could you say a little bit about the, you know, the things connecting the, the faraway plantations, the sites of production with the sites of consumption, you know, the supply chains uh, that connect uh, these sites then? Because one of the things that we noticed now, I think, in the pandemic is that these supply chains have gotten very strained. I mean, there are we've had shortages of particular types of oils at times uh, in the stores here. Uh, so, I mean, what, what role do the supply chains play in this story, you think? Mm. Yeah, this was a, a challenging part of the story to tell, and I, I ultimately cut some big sections on it because I didn't, I didn't think they were interesting enough. Um, in, in the 19th century, this first boom of palm oil, um, the supply chain is really vivid it's you know it's it's initially the, the palm oil supply chain is the slave trade um palm oil rides with slave ships it, it's ballast it's food for enslaved people um and in the 19th century there uh the the people moving palm oil um, are also the people who are buying it in in western africa so there's this close link between um transportation and and and, and purchase um that focus kind of falls apart part in the 20th century as plantations come to dominate production, they, they homogenize the supply chain. They, they, they literally bulk palm oil in gigantic tanks where they blend it from all sorts of different places. Um, it's pumped into tankers and moved um, 
quietly. You know, the, the whole point is you don't have to think about it. Um, it's just a constant, steady flow going to places like, like Rotterdam, uh, mostly. Um, and um, from there, it, it you know moves into factories in in many different ways. But um, that 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 flow was hard to study in part because it worked so well in the 20th century. Uh, I think it still works pretty well. And it works well in obfuscating where what palm oil is and where it comes from. Um, in some of these supply chains, palm oil was or is blended with other oils. It's, it's, it's used interchangeably um, in, in, with different products. And so keeping it invisible was a main goal of industry. Um, and I, I didn't find any you know, smoking gun letters in the archives where, where an advertising ex executive said, we need to keep this invisible. Um, but this is a theme that, that I see is, is companies choosing not to talk about palm oil. They just don't see a need to mention it. Um, and, and historian Susan Martin has written about this as well, uh, this theme of, of invisibility as a, as a main trait of, of palm oil in the late 20th century um, as a consumer commodity. Um, and it, just to throw in a brief note about um, supply chains and disruptions, I see we're almost out of time here. Um, the biggest disruptions at the moment um, are with labor, in fact. Um, it's the, the flow of, mi of migrant labor to Indonesia and Malaysia that is currently the biggest constraint now on, on oil output. There, there is fruit going unharvested uh, because these, this, this mobility um, of labor has suddenly been cut off. And it's, I think it's exposed how utterly dependent this industry is on cheap labor um, and has been from the start of the plantation era. So, so just to draw things together then in the end, uh, we talked a lot about plantations and everything that goes into that. Uh, what are your thoughts on a concept such as the plantation scene, you know, as a way of anyway, characterizing our, our world and how, how things are made? Uh, do you use this concept in your book? Uh, if not, why? Uh, do you think there's a use for such a concept? Yeah, I... I'm a little beaten down by the proliferation of scenes, I think. I mean, plantation scene was one of the early entrants. Um, um, and I, I thought I, I was initially more excited about it than I am now. Um, I think, I, and I've read a lot of, you know, a lot of really thought-provoking criticism about it. And um, I, I think the, the concept that I use more directly in the book is, um, I think Corey Ross coined this term, the plantation paradigm, where he argues that it's a way of, of thinking, but also specifically a way of organizing a business enterprise. Um, it's a real thing. It's not just a literary construct, something that lives in our imaginations. It is a real thing where real people work. Um, and so for me, uh, plantation scene dilutes that to some extent because most of the world is not the plantation. It's not the site of, of incredible power disparities and injustices and, and environmental catastrophes. Um, and this disconnect between uh, what is ultimately a very concentrated plantation world or worlds uh, and the, the enormous range of societies that consume palm oil. Um, I don't think calling it all the plantation scene really, really is analytically useful for me. Um, and, and so um, I, I've tried in, in my work to, to sort of focus on, on the, um, the impacts that I, that I can measure, that I, that I can observe, um, and also to, to stress the, the incommensurability of impacts. I mean, one of the things that's so, so, so devastating about the colonial and post-colonial and even contemporary oil palm industry is that things that can be so 
horrific, so life-changing in one part of the world can be so meaningless in other parts. Palm oil is interchangeable. It's substitutable. Nobody on the consumer side will live or die without it. Um, but it is so utterly important to, to everyday life in places where it's produced. It's, this, this, this incommensurability I find really um, interesting and, and I'm still grappling with ways of, of writing about that. Um, well, I wanna thank Jonathan nice. Robbins uh, for talking with us today about his book, Oil Palm, A Global History, uh, which came out with University of North Carolina Press in 2021. So thank you very much, Jonathan. All right, thank you, Dallin Sennard.